Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hide your children. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of May 9th, 2022. On this week's show, the New York Times' Joe Drape will be here to explain how the longest of long shots, Rich Strike, won the Kentucky Derby. We'll also assess the latest news on Brittany Griner's lingering detention in Russia. And finally, Shane Ryan will join us for a conversation about his new book on the 2021 Ryder Cup, A Cup They Couldn't Lose, and about Apocalypse Sports Trivia, the online trivia league that Stefan and I both partake in. I'm in Washington, D.C., and I'm the author of The Queen and the host of the podcast One Year. Also in D.C., Stefan Fatsis. He is the author of Word Freak, A Few Seconds of Panic, and Wild and Outside. Hello, Stefan. Hey, Josh. And with us, as he has been in recent weeks, the estimable Vincent Cunningham of The New Yorker, staff writer, and theater critic, uh, Vincent, are you feeling a bit discombobulated that we are not doing NBA this week and that all the series are tied 2-2? We're just going to, we're in a wait and see mode right now. I feel disconcerted, strange, tense, just like the playoffs themselves. I don't know what to make of them, and I'm, I'm happy to put it off because they're stressing me out. Like all good journalists and humans, Stefan, we're avoiding conflict. We're just going to wait. So yeah. everything sorts itself out. Everyone's happy again. No more injuries. No more tension. And we'll just kind of parachute in for a, a, a nice clean landing. Yeah, we're really hoping things really just calm down. That's what we want. <laughs> and we will get to the NBA in our afterballs. Don't worry. To earn a place in the Kentucky Derby, horses accumulate points from a series of qualifying races. 20 make the field. If a horse declines an invitation, organizers move down the list. A week before Saturday's Kentucky Derby, little-known Rich Strike sat 22nd. On Monday, Un Ojo, so named because it lost an eye as a yearling, dropped out. On Friday, Ethereal Road was scratched by its trainer, D. Wayne Lucas. Rich Strike moved into the 20th slot and went off at 80 to 1, tied for the longest odds in the field. And then on Saturday, this happened. Outside, Sandon gets the rail run, and they're into the stretch. And it's Messier, Crown Pride, and Epicenter is coming up on the outside. Epicenter has taken the lead as they arrive into the final for long. Sandon is coming after him. Epicenter and Sandon, these two strive for stride. Simplification down the outside is next. They're coming down to the wire. Epicenter's handed. Rich Strike is coming up on the inside. Oh my goodness! The longest shot has won the Kentucky Derby. That was Larry Colmus on the call for NBC. Rich Strike was in 13th place when Colmus shouted, and they're into the stretch. 
Before the finish, he uttered the horse's name just once during the perfunctory recitation of the entire field about halfway through when Rich Strike was in 17th place. And now I realize why announcers do that in the improbable event that a wayback horse makes a run to the front. So Colmus's incredible Rich Strike comes out of nowhere but journalistically, he was covered. Joe Drape of the New York Times was at Churchill Downs. He is with us now. Hey, Joe. Good to be here with you guys. You wrote that Rich Strike hit the wire low and long as if he were trying to sneak past a hall monitor. When you watch the amazing overhead shot of this race, you realize just how absurd the run from 17th to 1st was. The horse is moving so fast, it looks fake. It looks like a video game. What was it like in person? You know, it was really stunning, and you really didn't know it. Let's give it to Larry for even catching that horse at the end because he he was focused on Epicenter and Zandon going down, and nobody knew who was coming in on the inside. He was wearing the 21 saddle cloth. That's not a common cloth that you see. You know, it's color-coordinated, so you kind of had to look and see who it was. Uh, the overhead replay really sort of showed you what was going on there. Uh, the two foreign horses, one from Dubai, one from Japan, had European jockeys who had never really ridden in the dirt. They went out too fast, fastest quarter and a half mile in Kentucky Derby history. Sonny Leone, this sort of jock from nowhere, who's really accomplished, but never at this level. He just kind of laid back, let the pace collapse before him. He hugged the rail. And that's what you call saving ground in this. You know, the shortest point, the quickest place between two points is the shortest. You know what I'm saying? And then everything just opened up. He just got really lucky. And he rail opened. He makes one Hall of Fame move there at the end, pulling that horse up and moving around Messier, who was dead stopped ahead of him. And then I've never seen a rider that low. He was perpendicular. His head was over the ears and he was just scrubbing on that colt. And he scooted by him. There was no doubt he was going by him at that point. He was still running past the wire. So it was a really impressive performance, no matter the modest uh, connections and means of this horse. Let's talk a little bit more about the call by Larry Colmus. You alluded to it a little bit, uh, Joe, and how we should give him credit for even spotting Rich Strike. But just the cadence of it, the way that his voice goes up at the end, it gives, I mean, I've listened to that five times. It gives me goosebumps <laughs> every time. Can you talk a little bit more about Larry Colmus and about um, his kind of skills and what you heard in that call when you just heard it now? Yeah, and I've been fascinated with race callers. I think there's a great documentary. I've known him, Dave Johnson, Tom Durkin. And what these guys do is they have these notebooks, all right? They are there to jog their memories, and they have sort of a script of who has what. He knew he was the longest shot at the board. That's what he had to know. Uh, the real sort of trick of race calling is – you need to know all the horses for 20, 20 horses for two minutes, and then you forget about them because it's the next race. So it's always about the next race. There's no long-term memory on this. So, you know, Larry had the great cadence, and, you know, he's called the last two triple crowns. He's a really accurate uh, race caller, which is really what the premium is, is to be accurate. You, there's more florid. There's more animated 
but you get to be accurate and to hit the right notes. And, you know, that's why they, you, you guys said it, Stefan, that that's why they called down all 20 horses at some point, because they want to get as little sense of who's there. You got to realize they're up in a perch with uh, binoculars. They're not watching this on TV. They're doing it live and picking them out and moving them back and forth. So, you know, Larry, you could tell was ready. Sandin and Epicenter were the two favorites. It was easy for him once they get hit the screen, it hit the stretch. They he knew that was the race was on, and just the fact that he could pick uh, Rich Strike up to me was kind of amazing. And that's the difference between a blown call and a call for history. Just like you said, Josh. I mean, you know, he had it ready, and he was as surprised as anyway. That, that's what the cadence was. It was the equivalent of holy shit. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, <laughs> it's rich strike. So it worked really well with him. So when you speak in that way about the call, I can't help but think about your piece and a similar kind of astounded lyricism that kind of moves through that. Piece. I love your, your, your column. It makes me wonder, has your interest in those callers affected you as a stylist, as you're writing about the races? You know, I wish I had a really smart answer about it. Mainly I drink with these callers and that's, <laughs> I get their tricks, but uh, deadlines are incredibly liberating. All right. And I'm always on a tight deadline. And I was there with an editor and he said, why did you go that direction? And literally I was watching the race on a monitor and I have my recorder up there because I only have time to get the on-course quotes, you know, the, the quickest quotes in there. And Larry's call, and I look and I see who it is, see who it is, and I said, ah, <laughs> like that. And that ended up my lead because that's what I felt. I was like, shit, who, who, who saw that coming? And I didn't see that coming. And so then you kind of start recreating the moment, uh, you know, unfortunately and expensively, I have a lot of history in this sport. Um, I know a lot about it and it's, you know, useless information most of the time, but in 45 minutes on a race like that, I can kind of reach back into my toolkit and know these things. Uh, and yeah, it just, I thought it was a great race. It's game stories are game stories, but some are better than others. And this one you just did, had to get out of the way of. You had three people you had to introduce to an audience that nobody had ever heard of. You had this long shot outcome. And, you know, horse racing riding, and Josh always gives me hell about this when I'm on here about, you know, the romanticism, the lyricism <laughs> and all that. But horse racing is really the place where you can just let it rip, all right? You know, Kobe Bryant isn't going to come back and yell at me after a race. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's there. You gotta, you gotta paint the picture much like a race caller. You gotta get people excited for it. So, uh, that's, that's kind of how I approach these things. And let, let's talk about those elements of this story. I mean, even just doing this cursory sort of education on how horses get into the Kentucky Derby, um, you realize like what an insane confluence of circumstances this was. I mean, this was a horse that like sold for $30,000 in a claiming race, which is a race I learned where all the horses are for sale. Yep. Um, 
jockey had ridden six races on Friday in Ohio at some minor league track. The trainer and the owner were not people that are at the top of this sport. These are not the rich Saudis or the billionaires that are in, into horse racing. I mean, this really is like, and in horse racing, we, we, you know, we do, we can easily fall into this kind of upstart drama and it happens every four or five years with a, with a horse and an owner and a trainer. But in this case, it's kind of indisputable, isn't it? Tell us a little bit about just how unlikely these circumstances are. Well, first of all, that's the, that horse is the only one that owner has right now. He's a one, one horse owner. All right. He was bred by Calumet, which is one of the oldest, most fabled places. Well-bred his father's keen eyes who beat American Pharaoh up at Saratoga uh, at a mile and a quarter. So he's well-bred that way for some unknown reason. They put him on turf in his maiden race. And he got killed, finished way up the track. And you're right. Claiming races is how you basically move your stock, right? So they dropped him in a $30,000 claimer at Churchill well-bred colt, and he wins by 17 links, okay? They have a, the other like element that people probably don't realize is all four of us want to claim a horse, okay? So we could put a claim in, and that's what happened with him that day. There, there were six claims, and they actually had a shake, and the shake is literally, they put dice in a, like a cocktail thing, and they shake it out and they eliminate guys until who's the last one left. And they got horse. Hmm. So they outlasted five other people to get this horse. And then they had a plan for him. And the plan was to stretch him long. And they kept him up at Turfway Park, which is a synthetic surface. They're very safe. They're very good training surfaces. And so they just took their time with him and they spaced his races out. And then they didn't even have a, uh, an assurance to get in the Derby as you laid out the points, but they had to get really lucky with the points right then. And, you know, they rode, Sonny Leone rode five races at Bellaterra or Belterra because he didn't think they were going to get in. He's on his way to Florida for a vacation, all right, with his family. And the next morning, first Churchill calls and says, ah, doesn't look like you're going to get in. And then 10 minutes later, they called back and said, ethereal road scratch. So you're in. So he delays his vacation, comes down to the first Saturday in May for the first time. He'd never ridden in a stake, graded stakes race like this. And it's really sort of a cool, impossible story. And, you know, Eric Reed's a guy who is a working horseman. He has a hundred horses on his training center in Lexington. He ships them, Indiana, Kentucky. Ohio, West Virginia, and it's all sort of at the working man level. It's let's say, uh, you know, let's he's Dean Witter instead of Goldman Sachs. You know, he's just grinding out a living on that. So it's really kind of neat to see when these things work out and they don't all the time. And like you said, and I think that's why uh, people were fired up about this. Tired of the sheiks. Tired of the industrialists, tired of the princes, tired of the you know, there's a, a group that's Kendall Jackson Wine, the Soros phone fund, George Soros, uh, China Horse Club. And, you know, as a 
Arthur Hancock, a long time fourth generation on that. He he has a great saying. He's like, that's the silverback gorillas ganging up to get all the bananas because they can spend all the money. So that that's what's nice about this. So who wasn't there at, uh, at Churchill Downs is Bob Baffert, the mega trainer who was behind Medina Spirit, the horse that won the Derby last year, ended up getting uh, disqualified for having performance-enhancing drugs in his system. You wrote a great piece in the run-up to this Derby about the fate of Medina Spirit, who is no longer living. Um, and so what was it like at Churchill Downs without Baffert there? And was the kind of Medina Spirit story still lingering a year later? Medina Spirit story is lingering because Bob Baffert has let it linger. He has fought every step of the way, suspensions in state courts, in federal courts. Uh, he doesn't want to go away. That said, he may not have physically been in Churchill Downs, but his presence was definitely felt. He had two horses that he gave to a longtime assistant, former assistant, Tim Yachtin, uh, just four weeks ago, because that's when all his appeals were exhausted. He had to take a 90-day uh, suspension. And to, for those horses to qualify, they had to run the Santa Anita Derby to get enough points because they didn't have any points at that point. Uh, so there really were Baffert's horses, and that that hung in the atmosphere there. I mean, so that would have been awkward if they if one of yeah, them would have won. It, it would have been very awkward, and and this was the other thing. You know, the mm -hmm. racing gods probably did a good thing here, just because it allowed the sport to reboot for a minute. Now, Baffert's not going away. The Medina Spirit controversy is not going away. It's going to be continued to fought, but it is. At least we we get some relief for it. We have we've changed the storyline the next five weeks. So, does it change the storyline at all about drug use? About you know we're just a couple of years away from the story of horses collapsing with leg injuries and the spate of deaths at a at a single track. Um, these issues haven't gone away. Are they being addressed? You know, I've told you guys. I've read congressional testimony from the 1970s talking about all this stuff. I mean, it's the slowest yeah. moving thing ever. Uh, until I see it, I'm not going to believe it, but there are movements. The Horse Integrity and Safety Act has been passed. It is now a national commission under the federal trade control, and they have now started making uniform rules and a enforcement division that will take up the testing and take up the punishment on there. Uh, beginning days is supposed to start in July, and I'm sure they're a little uh, behind on that. You know, it's going to be interesting to see if it works. Uh, it hasn't worked so far when this, this much money involved, people take an edge and they cheat. And, you know, that's the sad, I guess, the sadness of human frailty. I don't, I don't know what to do. I've seen it for so long, and it happens at almost every level. Uh, until you really get a new sheriff in town and who knocks heads, it's still going to go on. Watching the Derby this year, I was. It made me think that as sports gambling is getting more prominent. In America, and you know, it, I'm seeing people bet on basketball and things that I haven't, you know, I haven't really seen as prominently 
um, before. It it made me think like horse racing is the one sport where it just seems natural to the sport. It seems a component part of the sport that you know you you take the underdog. Just like a when you're at Churchill Downs and something like this starts to happen, can you tell in in those seats who has money on the the long long shot and who's having the best day of their life? Like you know, at the end of that race, is it immediately apparent who's who's going to rake it in at the end of this race? Vincent, it is, and it builds up all day because the biggest question that you hear over and over from eleven in the morning till post time is, "Who do you like? Who do you like?" <laughs> and everybody's kind of listening to who they're betting, what combinations they're put together. And then once they break, you know, you've got – it's like having the Raiders fans here, the Chiefs fans there, <laughs> the Giants. Everybody's got their their rooting interest in there. And literally when it was Sandin and Epicenter coming down, mm-hmm. that was – that those two took the big money. So the place was a roar. And, you know, somebody was going to cash big. And then when that little horse got up the side, it kind of – went silent because again, nobody knew who it was for sure. And then Mm -hmm. silence. And then you hear pockets of somebody who like bet the name or something like that. (laughs) And they're going wild. And, uh, you know, I, I had friends who were alive to all these exotic bets, pick fives, pick six, which means you pick five or six in a row. And we're going into that race with eight horses alive. You know, you had, they were, (laughs) Eight, if any of these eight horses, they would have won, and boom, just like that, it's all gone. So it's it's very uh, it's a visceral thing, you know. It's not like sports betting, and I, I'm doing a lot of reporting on that, and I think that's the next big uh, thing that's going to erode, corrode, or at least impact our society. And that's a little more detached. That's sitting on the couch with the phone app, you know doing this and uh, rooting your fingers and doing it by yourself and silently and, you know, yelling at the TV with your wife, your kid and your dog. So it's not as a communal experience. And I think that that's what horse racing does. Well, uh, these five weeks for these three races is they make it a communal experience. They get into the American fabric. They give everybody a shot to enjoy it. Joe Drape is a reporter for the New York Times. He writes about horse racing and other issues. He's also the author of, most recently, The Saint Makers Inside the Catholic Church and How a War Hero Inspired a Journey of Faith. Joe, thank you, as always, for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, guys. Enjoy. up next, we'll talk about the state of Brittany Griner's detention in Russia and the start of the WNBA season. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. 
You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. The WNBA regular season opened on Friday night with four games, including the Las Vegas Aces 106-88 win over the Phoenix Mercury. Not playing for the Mercury was their star center, Brittany Griner, who's been detained in Russia on drug charges since February. But Griner's presence was felt everywhere in the league. Every WNBA court features a decal with her initials and jersey number 42. Her Phoenix teammates wore We Are BG t-shirts during their pregame shoot-around. And people all around the league made public statements about her absence, like this one from the Washington Mystics' Natasha Cloud. It's been 78 days since our friend, teammate, sister, Brittany Griner, has wrongfully been detained in Russia. It is time for her to come home. Know that we are watching. We are paying attention. We are BG. Vincent, in a lot of ways, nothing has changed with the Griner situation. She's still being held on charges that appear to be politically motivated. There's been no obvious movement within Russia to let her free. Um, But the public posture around her case has changed. Uh, Before last week, the State Department had encouraged Griner's family and friends to keep a low profile. But what we're seeing now is a major shift and is in no way quiet diplomacy. It's a big shift in the public positioning of this. And I think, unfortunately, given where we are in relationships, the relations between Russia and the United States, it it just seems like a kind of drumbeat that's getting louder and louder in all of our ears. Just before this news came down, I was reading a column by my uh, colleague Robin Wright about um, her sense that this has, that the conflict, the war in Ukraine has become a kind of proxy war between the U.S. and Russia, um, NATO and Russia in a kind of rekindled Cold War. Um, and for this to happen at around the same time, it just, um, it has a terrible, ominous vibe, not for, for Grana herself, for whom I feel awful, um, and for the state of geopolitics. I, it, I couldn't imagine a, a sports story more globally ominous and strange. Clearly, some, some calculation was made by the U.S. government that they were not making progress in obtaining her release through quiet diplomatic channels. And this does feel like a shift um, to this public posturing where the government believes it's fine for the WNBA, whose players you know, have some... Um, some some familiarity with Russian sports fans. These are not, in a lot of cases, obscure athletes. Uh, you know, we've talked before about how, and we'll talk more in this segment about how some Russian teams pay a lot of money to players like Brittany Griner to go play there. So, the, you know, what we don't know is whether her um, detention by the government is known at all inside of Russia. And perhaps the calculation that the U.S. government made is that through whatever social media and news outlets are penetrating uh, to the Russian public, maybe this news will get out and maybe someone who has some ability to, to influence will get involved. So Bill Richardson, the American politician and diplomat, has gotten involved, who's been involved in negotiations like this, before. And one reason for optimism is that 
a U.S. Marine, Trevor Reed, who'd been held in Russia um, for the last three years on drug smuggling charges, was just released in what um, was essentially a swap for um, a Russian who was being held in the United States. And so perhaps there's a sliver of daylight there if the U.S. is willing Mm -hmm. to do a swap for Griner. And the fact that Richardson is involved, the fact that these cases have been linked publicly makes you think that they are willing to do that and not willing to just see how this legal process works out. Because there is a hearing, I think, scheduled for 10 days, Vincent, but based on what we read, the U.S. is now not considering that hearing to have any kind of importance at all, that they're working on this through, you know, diplomatic channels rather than counting on the Russian legal system and waiting to see what, um, if anything, will be done there. Yeah, one of the, you know, problems or challenges with following this issue, this case, whatever you call it, as an American observer, is that just as the the issue of Griner's detainment moved from something that none of us knew about to something that we knew about, but kind of thought we shouldn't speak too much about because of its status as a with regard to the American stance toward it. And now this thing that's being spotlighted um, in a similar way, we don't know what else is happening, right? There's a whole, the whole issue, the whole issue kind of revolves around these silences and slow revelations. So it's hard to even know what to hope for. Um, one of the things, Stefan, that, that has been interesting to me is how quickly the WNBA itself, um, this is its opening week last weekend there some of the first games of the season started there were some good games um how quickly the WNBA um made this a part of their sort of publicity politics um there are decals on the on the on the floor showing BG the initials this immediate advocacy campaign seems to have jumped immediately into gear in a way that to me suggests that they knew something about this you know that that the category would change pretty yeah. quickly and that they were ready to do it um and it's just like wondering how much any of that will will have effect is just hard to know it's impossible to know i mean but clearly you're right i mean the league um and the nba i imagine were working directly with the state department to try to figure out what people can and can't say and those messages were being relayed to players through the players association i mean because this is a sort of a crisis reaction campaign right the decal on the floor with grinders initials and her number um hashtags coordinated statements from the star players in the league. Um, There's a clear and logical sensitivity to making sure that the messages that are um, disseminated are are approved and would do nothing to inflame the situation. They're all very well calculated as support for Brittany Griner and bring Brittany Griner home. I mean, the thing that complicates all of this, Josh, is that look, she's been in detention since February 17th. This is before the Ukraine invasion began. And I have no idea. I am not a, an expert in either the war or the geopolitics of this. So it is curious to me, like, how Griner has gotten sucked into the sort of proxy war, um, if it's that, between the United States and Russia over Ukraine, and whether Russian officials are using that 
as part of the leverage um, in detaining or releasing or negotiating for Griner's uh, release. Yeah, I mean, uh, hopefully when this gets resolved, and hopefully it'll get resolved quickly, we'll have answers to some of those questions. Um, Jonathan Abrams and Tanya Ganguly did a good story in the New York Times um, with the headline, Why Brittany Griner Could Be the Last American Basketball Star in Russia, that um, is a good backgrounder on um, the larger issue of basketball players in Russia and women's basketball being sort of like a play ground for oligarchs, especially this team, UMMC, you kind of Rindberg, which was paying Griner triple her salary, you know, a million dollars uh, being in Russia. We've talked about this before. But there's a clear linkage between um, the Griner story and Russia and what's, you know, been the biggest kind of domestic WNBA story this past week, which was the limitation in roster spots. And there are only 12 teams in WNBA, only 12 roster spots per team. But a lot of these teams, Vincent, aren't even employing 12 players because there's a hard cap. And so they're choosing to pay 11 players more. Um, And so you see this um, phenomenon of like high draft picks in the WNBA just getting cut and not having a chance to make teams. And there's no G League, so there's no opportunity for them to kind of hone their games domestically. And so in in the story, you know, I'm not criticizing the story at all, but if you look at the headline, why Brittany Griner could be the last American basketball star in Russia, I mean, where are these players going to go? They have to go somewhere to either, you know, get paid, make a living, but also if they want to, even if their goal is to make the WNBA, like if you want to get a game, if you want to like play against the best and hone your skills, like you have to go play somewhere. And so it's kind of on the the WNBA, um, something something needs to change here if the goal is, uh, you know, not putting players in these dangerous situations. Yeah, I mean, it, there's that issue, this new hard cap roster slot issue, and then there's been the abiding issue of just simply how much WNBA players are paid. So uh, Diana Taurasi, for example, has talked about how you know she made the hard decision to not play in the WNBA for a whole season because she got paid I think it was 1.5 million dollars by a Russian team and it stipulated that she would not play in the WNBA during that span and she said you know my all of my advisors said it would be lunacy financially for me not to take this deal so like you know it became this thing that I couldn't um I couldn't not do and we've talked about this before but it's not th- those salaries are not derived from the fact that women's basketball is popular in Russia. It's not. It's because oligarchs want these players. It's some sort of like grand game that they're playing over there where they want these players as like chess pieces, you know, to, you know, win win favor. And like another really fascinating thing is this notion that oligarchs want to become involved in sports because it makes them more high profile and makes it harder for Putin to like take their money away or to, you know, like what, <laughs> yeah. once they become better known, um, I don't think that's, you know, necessarily worked, um, in the case of women's basketball and maybe it's not even necessarily worked for Roman Abramovich, but I mean, that's the, the theory behind it. Well, the theory behind it is there are a couple theories, right? One is I have to spend my money somehow. 
Um, there's a quote <laughs> from uh, an old quote in the Time story from uh, one of the basketball oligarchs saying, you know, you can only buy so many breakfasts or something. So he's got to, you know, you got to spend your money. And B, it makes you look good internationally. Even, you know, the, the, on the one hand, it's the make, make Putin feel good because we know that Putin likes sports success. But the flip side is that you establish a reputation and a personality um, in the international sports community. So ultimately, this is kind of sports washing. It's not like they're making money from revenue and advertising and television rights um, in, in, in these cities hours and hours from Moscow. Um, they are doing this for stature. They're doing this because it's fun. They're doing this because they have hundreds of millions of dollars to spend, and oh, why not just spend it on women's basketball and bring these American players over and make them into local celebrities? Because um, it does sound like fun, and that is one of the motivating reasons for owners in any country for owning sports teams. So it's not that much different um, from what owners do over here. Um, the, the question that I think hasn't been wrestled with and the agent that is quoted in that New York Times takeout um, about the future of, of, of American women playing in Russia, Mike Cound, sort of hits on it. It's the sort of, I think, realization now that, that they've been accepting dirty money for 20 years to participate in this oligarchical money exchange slash laundering slash sports and reputation washing scheme. And it was easy for athletes and probably okay for athletes to blithely say, I'd be a fool not to take the one and a half million dollars. But the reckoning is now, like, where did this money come from? What kind of a decision did we make to accept it? And what are the ramifications of that? And the ramifications of it are Brittany Griner got detained. And that's part of the conversation. I'm not, I'm not blaming the athletes for accepting that money when they did, but there were consequences that maybe at the time were unforeseen. One thing it makes me think about is because of the country that we are and because of our system, the soft power that athletes represent has basically happened through the free market, right? Michael Jordan gets endorsement deals. He becomes a global superstar. Whatever that, whatever redounds to the United States from that happens all the, through market mechanisms, right? It happens by itself. Um, it seems to me that that is increasingly unsustainable. And whatever this like multipolar world that we have, whatever the dangers are that we've all seen, there was a, I think, slightly tongue in cheek op ed in the New York Times a couple Sundays ago. Uh, by again and Matthew Walther, and it was about it, it was um, nationalized the it nationalized Major League Baseball, um, and he was talking about the sort of museum effect uh, that's going on in the MLB now. But I wonder, short of something like that, whether there is now more than ever need for the United States to have something like there's been jokes for many years about having a sports czar that is a very um, public figure. Um, who, you know, would be kind of negotiating things that happen in sports vis-a-vis -vis politics. Um, I think mostly geopolitically, there might be more need for something like that within the State Department or elsewhere than maybe ever before. Because it seems like that Wild West, that market logic is part of what brings us to this, to this juncture. 
And it's just like an impossible bind that women athletes mm-hmm. find themselves in. Because what's the flip side, Stefan? It's the NWSL. It's you have to support this league and be here or else, you know, women's professional soccer will fail in the United States. And you have to take these low salaries and you have to put up with being abused by these coaches and the league not doing anything about it. Um, the WNBA hasn't been that bad. That's sort of the edge case. I mean, I guess it's not an edge case. They're only like, those are the two most prominent women's sports leagues in the U.S. But if you're a WNBA player, you can say, you know, we're not being treated the way we should be treated. We're not getting the salaries that we should be getting. And there aren't so, enough teams. There aren't enough teams. And and there's this other thing that's happening, which is the WNBA is pushing in the next couple of years, I think in 2024, this like prioritization policy where if you're not there for the start of training camp, which basically means if you're um, not staying in the U.S., uh, you know, in the off season, then you're not eligible to play. So, so the like ratchet is getting tightened on these players. And yet there's no, you know, the WNBA says, Oh, we're giving, you know, offering inducements for people, for players not to go overseas endorsement deals and marketing deals. And I think there's some truth to that, but you know, they're saying like, Oh, expansion, we're studying it. You know, we'd like to have a couple, like it, it feels like, if there's going to be a tit for tat here, if there's going to be, we'll, you know, do right by you if you stay. I think that WNBA needs to make more of a commitment to say we are definitely expanding mm-hmm. by X number of teams, and it's going to happen at this amount, and we're going to have twelve roster spots. Like it seems like they're asking more of players than they're willing to give themselves, and I guess right, that's which, why which that's why unions players, exist, which pushes players into cutting deals. With these oligarchs, I mean, the guy that owns UMMC Yekaterinburg, um, Iskander Mahmudov, head of like a mining and and metallurgical company, according to the Times story, linked to criminal activity and has business associations with other oligarchs tied to organized crime in Russia. Um, the when when Sue Bird and Diana Taurasi went overseas and started this, playing in Russia and getting big bucks with Spartak Moscow. In the 2000s, the owner of, of that team, you know, gave them these lavish apartments and bonuses and gifts. Um, he was he made his money in, in diamonds. He was murdered in 2009. Um, I don't know if the leagues should be vetting where players can go. Um, should there be some oversight by the union? Um or, or is this just, again, part of the problem that these players are forced into because they want to maximize and should maximize their talent in their peak years of performance? Up next, Shane Ryan on the Ryder Cup and sports trivia. Just a warning to listeners, Vincent will be uh, sitting out this one in the bonus segment. On this week's bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to talk with Shane Ryan. He is the proprietor of Apocalypse Sports Trivia. You're going to hear from him later in the show. 
Um, Stefan and I do this uh, sports trivia league that Shane runs, and we're going to run some of our sports trivia questions by him to see if we have what it takes to be sports trivia maestros. If you want to hear that, if you're interested in uh, a little sports trivia yourself, you need to be a Slate Plus member for this segment. Um, if you join, you get bonus segments on this show, on Slow Burn, other Slate podcasts. And you also get unlimited reading on the Slate website, among many other attractive inducements. To sign up, go to slate.com slash hangupplus. Again, that's slate.com slash hangupplus. This podcast is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you're driving, cooking, or doing laundry, Progressive knows the podcasts you listen to go best when they're bundled with another activity. Much like how their progressive home and auto policies go best when they're bundled. Having these two policies together makes taking care of your insurance easier and could help you save too. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. That's a whole lot of savings and protection for your favorite podcast listening activities, like going on a road trip, cooking dinner, and even hitting the home gym. Yep, your home and your car are even easier to protect when you bundle your insurance together. Find your perfect combo. Get a home and car insurance quote at Progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. The year's biggest golf story, non-Tiger Woods division, has been the possible splintering of the PGA Tour, with a bunch of top players rumored to join the new Saudi-backed Live Golf League. That whole thing seemed to fall apart, as we discussed in a segment back in February, thanks to a particularly egregious and ill-timed quote from Phil Mickelson. But the Saudis still have a crap ton of money, and this past week, Sergio Garcia made it clear that he was stoked to take it. Garcia was mad after losing his ball at the Wells Fargo Championship, and he shouted at a PGA Tour rules official, I can't wait to leave this tour, and a couple of more weeks, I don't have to deal with you anymore. Joining us now is Shane Ryan, a man who only whispers sweet nothings when he loses his golf ball. He is the author of the new book, The Cup They Couldn't Lose, America, the Ryder Cup, and the Long Road to Whistling Straits. And he's also the proprietor of America's favorite online trivia league, Apocalypse Sports Trivia, which we are excited to tell you about shortly. Hey, Shane. Hey, guys. How are you? Doing well. Um, So let's start on the golf side of things. And my reaction to the Saudi tour stuff, I think, squares with most people's reactions. I'm not like uh, an outlier here, has been that it's a disgusting, amoral cash grab. And I think most people's reaction to the Ryder Cup, which your book is about, is that it's maybe the only event in this entire sport where the players aren't totally out for themselves. Um, and so I'm wondering, am I wrong on either count? Can you complicate either of those things or is it <laughs> as simple as it seems to be? Yeah, there will be no uh, defense of the Saudis here, Josh. Uh, no, you're, you're completely right on both counts. Um, starting with the Saudis, obviously that's the biggest story in golf right now. And I don't think that many people thought golfers, professional golfers as a group, were the most moral people to begin with. But yeah, this certainly shows that there's almost nothing there. Uh, For the guys going, it definitely is an amoral cash grab. They clearly don't care uh, what the Saudis are doing. And some of them, Lee Westwood, have even said 
you know, well, they're trying to improve through sports, right? Like, which is the exact goal of what the Saudis are doing. It's sports washing. Uh, and so really, not only are they going, but some of them are sort of being their willing puppets in a way. Is it more the European guys that are that are going? And with the Mickelson thing, it seemed like the whole thing got blown up. Is it just that we stopped paying attention and people just started trickling back? Or, or, or was this always going to kind of happen in this way? And maybe the only thing that changed was like a handful of high profile Americans decided we can't do this. Yeah. So with the Mickelson thing, yeah, it, it did seem briefly like it was blown up, but the problem always is that what the Saudis have going for them is they don't care about making a profit. So when you see a splinter league in, in any other sport, like, I don't know, the USFL or something, the idea is that you have to find a way to make money. Well, the Saudis don't care about that. And so they can always sit there with their stockpile of, you know, $500 billion or whatever is in the state fund and just, you know, okay, if we have setbacks, that's fine. Let's invite somebody else. If the top players don't want to come with us, fine. Let's invite minor league type players, pay them through the roof and wait for the pro players to be like, hey, wait a second. Why are they making, you know, $30 million a year? And I know I'm better than them. So they can kind of, you know, they have the luxury of sitting back and waiting. So Phil kind of screwed that up, but it was never really going to go away. The only thing that makes it go away is if the Saudis don't want to do it anymore. Yeah, right now it's interesting. There are a lot of European guys going. A couple reasons for that. There happen to be a class of older European golfers like Sergio Garcia, Lee Westwood, Ian Poulter, who are these really big names, but they're also kind of like in their early 40s. They're sort of over the hill, so they don't risk a lot. Uh, in other words, if the PGA Tour or somebody says, okay, fine, if you want to go play for the Saudis, great, you've got a lifetime ban from us, that doesn't really bother them as much anymore. Uh, and then the European Tour already has relationships with Saudi Arabia, so it's less complicated over there. Uh, so yeah, so Phil Mickelson would be an example of somebody who would fit that sort of description uh, age-wise in the U.S., and he has his own bitternesses to the PGA Tour. But for the younger American guys playing on the PGA Tour, it's a huge risk. It, it becomes a much more a much different calculation. And the calculation is that you are collaborating. And I think the the idea of athletes willingly participating in sports washing, money laundering, reputation laundering, um, is only going to be scrutinized more and more. We just talked about Brittany Griner and American women's basketball players uh, taking the money from Russian oligarchs, Chelsea uh, Chelsea's owner, Roman Abramovich, had to sell the team. We th That happened this past week. Um, so the notion that you can sort of quietly skate by and just participate in these, the, you know, in, in, the, in the receipt of, of, I don't know, soiled, tainted, at least slightly unsavory money, um, feels like it might be something that's not going to be quite as palatable um, or overlooked going forward. Or maybe it's just, hey, the Saudis are the way of the world and there's nothing wrong with their money and screw everybody else. I mean, what, what exactly do these players risk, um, either in terms of their week-to-week -week participation in events in the United States, including the majors, in doing this? Yeah, I, I think one of the really disappointing things about this is that Okay, forget the guys who are going, right? They've obviously got their own moral calculations, which is, you know, they don't care at all. Uh, there hasn't really been an outcry from any other player, the players who are staying. Uh, there's been an outcry in some corners of the golf media, uh, but not that vociferous. There's been some fans who are, who are really upset about it. But what's happening is that you're seeing golf is probably the most conservative politically sport uh, among these sort of major American sports and, and the media and the fan base and the players 
all reflect that. And so for me, you're seeing less, if, if you could ever escape, like to answer your question, if you could ever kind of escape by and take this money and, and sort of survive with your reputation intact among your people, I think golf is the one sport uh, where that could happen. And it seems like the only thing keeping people back would be the threat of the PGA Tour saying, if you do this, you are going to you know, lose your place on our tour for life. We're going to ban you, which seems like where this is all going. Uh, and so, <laughs> unfortunately, when people don't do it, it's not for like the moral reasons we would like. We would love them to say, you know, I cannot support what this regime is doing. I, I, I can't be a party to this and sort of sports wash and all that stuff. But really what's happening is they're just saying, well, if I do this, I, I might put, you know, my my career at risk. And so that seems to be the one thing holding everybody back from this mass exodus. So on the book, Shane, um, and the Ryder Cup, the thing that I found most interesting about the book and about the Ryder Cup is this tension between the the kind of irrationality of the event and the results. Like it seems like um, it, it doesn't just seem like the Americans always have better talent and until this last uh, event at Whistling Straits, they always lose or almost always lose. Um, yeah. And it seemed like um, the kind of explanation for that from American golf officialdom is like, well, but as, as you write in the book, like there are things that can be done or could be done and were done at this last event. Like there were like consultants who were brought in and applied the same kind of like sabermetric research that we've seen in every sport. And um, so then you have this like 19 to nine blowout. And so I guess the question is, um, why <laughs> did it take them that long to figure this out? Or is it, um, you know, another thing that we like to say, if we're sabermetrically inclined is like small sample size. It, do we even know if this stuff worked or could it just be a coincidence and everybody just played really well? And so we think that they were smart and savvy at whistling straights. Yeah, no, I definitely think it's it's more than a small sample size. The one word answer to your question about why it took so long is arrogance. <laughs> but to give a to give a really quick history lesson, uh, you know, this Ryder Cup started in 1927, and it was the U.S. versus the U.K. every two years, and for 50 years, America won almost every single time. They just the talent was such an overwhelming you know advantage for them that it was never close. And to the point that in the late 70s, they expanded it to Europe, the U.K. team, to be more competitive. They still lost really badly twice in a row, and it became this thing where the Ryder Cup was basically on the verge of death. They needed to hunt for sponsors. Uh, it was this. It was this really dramatic story of basically they didn't know if there would be a Ryder Cup in 1983, but there was. And this guy named Tony Jacklin took over this British golfer as the captain of Team Europe, and his turnaround story, which is a big part of my book, it's one of the I guess the two main narratives of my book is how he took Europe from these perennial losers into this powerhouse that, like you said, dominated America for the next 30 years with inferior talent. And it's a really cool story of basically Europe identifying the fact that this is a team event and you can employ team strategy, even though golf is an individual sport. And it's really easy to look at it and say, well, it's just one guy or two guys against two guys or whatever. How can it be like, how can there be strategy? How can it be anything but just talent? Well, it turns out it is. And there's all kinds of dynamics that play into that. And, you know, the Americans just kind of rested on their laurels for 30 years saying, we have the better players. Eventually, this is going to come around and we're going to win. 
up until 2014 when they had, you know, basically were humiliated in Glen Eagles in Scotland. Uh, and finally, there was a, a core group of people that included Phil Mickelson, actually, but guys like Davis Love, Steve Stricker, Jim Furyk, who came together and said, okay, we need to figure out what Europe is doing and we need to figure out what we can do to win. And that is the sort of second uh, narrative, the second main story of my book is how did America finally figure it out? And then, you know, always kind of in the back of everyone's mind was, okay, if Europe does everything so well and they win with inferior talent, what would happen if America with superior talent actually had good strategy and actually had a great system that learns from year to year and can get better? Uh, and Whistling Straits, I think, was the answer to that question was the climax of the story, which is, you know, you you absolutely dominate and blow them out. So, you know, I always been something I loved this tournament. And I think those two stories uh, are really, really fascinating. Well, give us a give us a couple of examples of what Europe knew that the arrogant Americans weren't able to acknowledge or uh, implement and then what the Americans did to change. And some of them are really laughably simple. Like the Europeans would manipulate their courses when they were playing in Europe. In other words, like if the Euro if the US was known as, okay, they putt really well on fast greens because the greens in America are really fast. Uh, and you know, the courses in America are sort of wide open so that you have really long hitters and you can, so well, what the Europeans would do is they would slow up their greens by moisturizing them and, you know, making them super slow and they would make the fairways really narrow so that the Americans were used to like being able to bomb and it's okay if we go 20 yards left, all of a sudden are in this horrible thick rough and they don't know what to do. Uh, other stuff would be like, you know, employing, having captain's picks. And so, where, okay, you have your order of merit where your 12 people, your best 12 people make the Ryder Cup team. What the Europeans and Tony Jacklin figured out is that that's not always what you want. And, and sometimes the way they determine this is a little skewed. So you end up leaving off really good players. And so they said, okay, we're going to have two or four captain's picks where instead of having the top 12, we're going to have the top eight. And then the captain's going to have freedom to take who he wants. So there were all these years where the U.S. would be losing out on people like Tom Watson or these really, really good golfers while Europe was not having that problem. So those are just two examples. Uh, there's there's plenty of others. Um, going down into things like having a comfortable team room and inviting the family so all the players are comfortable and have this good team environment, things like that. Um, you know, Asking the players who they want to play with and telling them well in advance because golfers are notoriously these you know, obsessive, fickle people who like to know exactly what's going on and they hate surprises. Whereas like in America, they would, you know, have the, the most miserable week of their life because they couldn't do it. Um, other little things that are up to luck, like American fans didn't really get into this into the mid nineties, whereas Europe has that amazing fan culture. And they were, you know, they were, once Europe got good, they were prepared to be these raucous loud fans and just shock these American golfers who weren't used to that kind of environment. So, you know, it goes on and on. And uh, again, yeah, it took like 30 years for the Americans to figure it out. So I want to move on to trivia. But one last comment is you need to be careful what you wish for, because if uh, the Americans have figured this thing out and have superior talent, maybe the Ryder Cup will wither away and uh, and die. The Americans just win every year. So maybe the Americans um, having the superior talent and uh, not being rational about it was the only thing that allowed you to write this book. You're, you're, that you're so right. And it, it is a thing where it's like Europeans winning makes it such a better story. And if it does become this era of American dominance, it's not going to be as fun. Um, so you are the proprietor of Apocalypse Sports Trivia, which Stefan and I both participate in avidly. Um, we won't get into who has a, a better record. It's not important. 
Um, <laughs> but um, it's an online trivia league. It's extremely fun. Um, can you just explain what um, the the concept is, and then we'll get into some uh, bigger picture trivia uh, uh, questions. Yeah, yeah. Let me see if I can do this in like thirty seconds. I always try to explain <laughs> quickly, and I always fail. But basically, this is a um, a sports trivia league run online where. Uh, we run seasons of 12 days each, about seven times a year. And if you're playing, every single day you're playing another opponent head-to-head uh, over these 12 days. At the end of them, you might be promoted into a new division or relegated into one below. The idea being that you're always playing somebody of sort of similar ability, so it's always fun in that way. Um, in the off-season, we have these targeted quizzes that are like about a very specific sports topic. It could be anything from Super Bowl winning quarterbacks to darts or anything like that. Uh, there are championships we hold on Zoom at the end of each fortnight. That's what we call our seasons. Josh, you have you have triumphed in one of those before. We call that the Meistershaft. Josh is one of the great players. Stefan's very good as well. Um, and, you know, yeah, I would just say that this is something I started with uh, about 10 friends two years ago. And quickly, like I could tell they really liked it. And I teamed up with my friend, William Earnhardt, who is a kind of a website genius. And, you know, now we have more than 700 players. So it's, it's been really fun. And, um, you know, anybody who wants to join can go to apocalypsetrivia.com and there's a sign up link. Uh, there's now an annual subscription fee, but everybody plays their first, uh, season for free with no obligation. So you can check it out. And you decided to go pro. That was one conversation we had, uh, last year. Um, about whether to keep this sort of fun and organic and uh, and free to the world, or whether to try to be like Learned League and other trivia yeah. uh, sites that have done extremely well. And I I told you go for it. I mean, it seemed like the right move to me. Yeah, you know, it's it's so much time that and and it gets to be more time as more people join that it really was like I can't you just can't keep doing it for fun forever. Uh, because <laughs> clearly it basically it takes up like a lot of your life. And so, yeah, you know, just like a, a nominal sort of $20 subscription fee, or there are private divisions, which you guys do and that you would pay $35 a year for that. We hoped it was cheap enough that it doesn't exclude too many people. Uh, and it just sort of, yeah, it, it, as we build it, it makes it sort of kind of justifies the, the insane hours that we spend on it. All right. A couple sample questions. If you want uh, to know what this Thing is like uh, from from recent days in apocalypse sports trivia. Name the only person to reach the championship round or game of the NCAA Division One Women's Tournament, WNBA, and Olympics as a player, and the NCAA Division One Women's Tournament and Olympics as a head coach. Um, another one is: if you live in a certain nation, population five hundred sixteen thousand, you won't be cross to support soccer clubs called Hibernians, Valletta, Floriana, or Sliema Wanderers. They've won the most titles in the history of the top domestic league, name the nation. All right. And I would say on both of those, if you have been listening to Hang Up and Listen, you should get the first one pretty easily since that was a, a subject of a, of a recent segment. The second one I got right, Josh got wrong, just saying. <laughs> and this, this helps me segue into what makes a good sports trivia question. The thing that makes a good sports trivia question is that you get it and I don't? Is yeah, that's that exactly <laughs> the answer. Read it again, though. If you live in a certain nation, population 516,000, 
you won't be crossed to support soccer clubs called Hibernians, Valletta, Floriana, or Slayama Wanderers. They've won the most titles in the history of the top domestic league. Name the nation. So there's no way that any normal soccer fan or maybe even... Um, obsessive soccer fan is going to know the answer to this because it's a small nation. On the other hand, and again, what makes this good is that it's gettable even if you don't know anything. And this is what I love about so many of the clues in Apocalypse, Shane, is that they are structured that you can figure something out without knowing some minute piece of sports trivia. It's not about having some encyclopedic recall of every baseball batting average or Wimbledon champion. There's a way usually to figure out the answer. And in this case, I figured out the answer because I know that the capital of Malta is Valletta and one of the teams was Valletta, so Malta. And then the secondary clue in there is that is the cross, right? And the cross is the symbol of the of the of the island nation. So that's what I liked about that one. And that was a good good choice there, Josh, to sort of explicate what makes a good question. But there are other things that make good questions, aren't there? Yeah. So, you know, I, when you guys asked me this over email, I, I forced myself to like really think about it in a like, how would I classify sports trivia questions? And I think broadly I was able to, you can break it down into two. Um, and it gets right at what you were saying, Stefan, where the first category I would call just direct questions. Mm-hmm. So if I said, you know, who wore number 23 for the Chicago Bulls in the 1998 season, that you either know that or you don't, right? That That's something that you know it's Michael Jordan probably if you're a sports fan, but there's nothing about that question that gets you there if you don't know it already. And the question that I, the, the non-Malta question that I teased before, the answer being Don Staley. I mean, maybe you could limit it down to a universe of women who you think might have attained those accomplishments, but um, that one that one's probably more in the you know it or you don't category than perhaps the Malta one. Or though you may think, oh, it's probably something that's been in the news recently because often, again, a good question leans on your um, your your recent knowledge of events. Yeah, and I, I do think a lot of people you know talk about those direct questions with like a little disparagement. I think there is a place for them, but they're not the ones where afterward you're going to go, wow, what a great question that was. You know, that would be the indirect questions. And just like you were saying, Stefan, I think what makes a good indirect question is that it kind of engages your lateral thinking uh-huh. a little bit. And so when you come up with the answer, it's not something you can get right off the bat. You have to kind of like follow two or three steps, almost like you're solving a puzzle. But there's like a little sense of epiphany or revelation. That's always like in Learned League, which you mentioned, that's always something I've really liked uh, in his questions when you get there and you're like, man, that was awesome because it really, you feel like you've accomplished something. Uh to do that. And I think, yeah, I think lateral thinking is the big thing. And then the other thing I flagged is like, as a bonus, even if you know the answer, if it can give you some new fact, that's kind of interesting. I always think that's cool in in a trivia question, just from a a writerly standpoint. All right. So you've got a couple of questions um, and you're going to give away a book to a lucky listener. And then um, in our bonus segment, if you stick around, Stefan and I have written our own questions and we are going to get them evaluated by... Uh, the trivia czar, Sports Radamus, as he calls himself. Uh, but Shane, what are your what are your uh, questions for our listeners? Okay, I'll give you two, uh, and you can email Shane at apocalypsetrivia dot com, and I'll take the first correct answer um, for each one. And uh, yeah, send me your address, and I'll send you a book. So uh, number one, in the nineteen oh four Summer Olympic Games in St. Louis, a retired cricket professional named George Lyon won a gold medal as one of just three Canadians competing in an event that included 71 Americans and no other nations participated. 
Who was the next man to win an Olympic gold medal in Lions event? And a fun little bit of trivia there is that was in Fortnite 1 of Apocalypse Sports Trivia when it was run by email and somebody spoiled it by replying off. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not, it's not an official AST question, but it, it could have been. That's great. Uh, and then the second question. Re- re- read back uh, the question. Read back the question. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sure, sure. Uh, in the 1904 Summer Olympic Games in St. Louis, a retired cricket professional named George Lyon won a gold medal as one of just three Canadians competing in an event that included 71 Americans. No other nations participated. Who was the next man to win an Olympic gold medal in Lyon's event? Okay, and number two, give you guys a hint. This is a Ryder Cup question. Uh, A private golf club in Florida developed by Tony Jacklin and Jack Nicklaus features a silhouette logo of the two men with their arms around each other, walking off an 18th green more than 4,000 miles away. What's the name of that private club in Florida? Let me do that one more time. A private golf club in Florida, developed by Tony Jacklin and Jack Nicklaus, features a silhouette logo of the two men with their arms around each other, walking off an 18th green more than 4,000 miles away. What's the name of that private club in Florida? Thank you, Shane. Uh, you can email him at shane at apocalypsetrivia.com. And the book is The Cup They Couldn't Lose. Shane Ryan, thank you. And thank you for sticking around with us for our bonus segment coming up. Thanks a lot, guys. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. And now it is time for After Balls. We never followed up on Josh's After Ball from a couple weeks ago about Pelicans guard Jose Alvarado's talent for hiding on the basketball court. Josh had asked what other sports were good for hiding. As soon as the show ended, our producer Kevin Bendis mentioned, duh, the classic hiding sport, dodgeball. I was a pretty good dodgeball hider in elementary school, I must say. Listener Brian Donovan wrote in to describe a wily hiding maneuver in ice hockey that sometimes occurs right when a penalty is ending and the penalized player pops out of the box behind the defense leading to a breakaway attempt. It's kind of hiding, I'll grant it. Listener and team handball activist John Ryan noted a couple of hiding plays that are based on the sports substitution rules. You can sub on the fly in team handball. On defense, the sixth court player will hide on the bench 
and then, according to Ryan, dart out of the substitution area and steal a casual pass. That seems very sneaky. On offense, Ryan said, a team will deliberately overthrow a pass. The defenders will start running for a fast break in the other direction, only to see an offensive player step on the court and throw the ball back to the waiting offensive players who are now all alone. One more reason to love team handball. And then on Saturday, hiding in soccer, maybe the apotheosis of hiding in soccer. Josh did mention this in his afterball, but this was just such a perfect example. It happened in England's second division, the championship in a game between Luton Town and Reading in the first minute of first half stoppage time. Here's what went down. Reading keeper Ojan Nieland slid to stop across by Lutontown forward Harry Cornick's momentum carried him into the net. Nieland then stood up, took a few steps forward, and casually rolled the ball a couple of yards in front of him to get the ball into play, as a keeper would do. But he didn't notice Cornick lurking about six feet behind him. And when Nieland dropped the ball, Cornick pounced made a quick turn around the keeper, and scored. Let's listen to the clip. What a mistake! Doesn't see Harry Cornick lurking in behind. Oh, dear. The crazy thing is that this was a huge game. Luton Town, which had lost 7 to nothing to first place Fulham earlier in the week, needed a win to guarantee a top six finish and secure a spot in the playoffs for promotion to the Premier League. They got it thanks to Cornick's sneaky goal because the final score was one to nothing. And now you have to root for the Hatters. The town once made a lot of straw hats, so they're the Hatters. Low-budget team, relegated from the top flight of English football 30 years ago, fell all the way out of league football in the 2000s, climbed back to the second tier in 2019, and now they're just three games away from the promised land, all thanks to some timely hiding by a guy whose career has included stops at clubs that sound like made-up English team names, Aldershot Town, Haventon, Waterlooville, Yeovil Town, Gillingham. Good for you, Harry Cornick. And it sounds like Harry Connick, Harry Cornick. Vincent, what's your Harry Cornick? Stefan, I, I want to talk a little bit about Draymond Green and his burgeoning media career. Draymond, the sort of attitudinal Swiss army knife for the Golden State Warriors, has kind of famously been going uh, on his own podcast, not only during the NBA season this past season, but during the playoffs, sort of giving mid-season, mid-season and mid-series analysis of his team's fortune. Um, in After game one, for example, of uh, the Warriors series against the Memphis Grizzlies, after Draymond had been ejected for that game for a flagrant two foul, he talked about the flagrant right after it happened and talked about the the game as it had unfolded and, and the Warriors' win over uh, John Morant's Memphis Grizzlies. After game two, when um, his teammate, Gary Payton II, was famously hurt by Dylan Brooks, another flagrant foul, and sort of and fractured his elbow, Draymond talked about that, but also about 
John Morant's amazing game in that in in that game and what the Warriors can do moving forward to win the series. So unlike other people who have sort of managed media careers at the same time as being NBA players, Draymond is an analyst, really performing a journalistic function. There have been other people who have done media work during their careers. Jalen Rose, the year before he retired, worked as a sideline reporter for the playoffs. Uh, right now, there are WNBA players like Candace Parker and Chine Ogwumike who are between, again, between seasons working as broadcasters. But nobody's performed this dual function at the same time. And what it makes me think of is the other famous uh, dual function for NBA players now abolished, which was the player coach. As we all know, Bill Russell was for three seasons between 1966 and 69, a player coach for the Celtics. And he was the first black coach in North American professional sports to uh, win a championship and the first one at all. Lenny Wilkins was a player coach for the Seattle Supersonics and for the Portland Trailblazers. Eventually, Wilkins was the only player coach uh, ever to be inducted into the NBA's Hall of Fame as both a player and a coach. Dave DeBusher, great NBA legend, a great Nick, uh, was a player coach for the Detroit Pistons before he came to the New York Knicks and won a championship under the coaching of the great William Holtzman, also known as Red Holtzman, who is, like I am, a product of the City University of New York. He was a, a player coach before uh, uh, before he went on to be a coach all alone. Here's the crux of what I'm about to propose, though. The player coach was abolished during the 1984-1985 season when the salary cap was instituted. Basically, it was abolished to avoid the possibility that a team could somehow get around a loophole in the cap by hiring the person for both functions and the, the salary wouldn't count under the cap. Um, but we're in a new era with new prerogatives, and I think, therefore, we need to get ahead of the inevitable new function of player analyst, or as I would maybe call it, and maybe this is what Draymond Green is, the very first NBA ombudsman. What if on every team there was a player like Draymond Green who was charged not only to play, but to serve as a public talker, a public sort of accountability engine for their team, who would not only sort of talk about the, the, the game as you do in after post-game pressers or things like this, but would serve a kind of chastening function for the team. How could this work? I feel like Draymond could, could help us, but it would require some strict regulation by the league. So I wonder what you'd think about this. Number one, every team would be required to make at least one spot available for an ombudsman. Everybody wouldn't have to have one but they would have to make it available. And if they did, they would have to partner with a media organization who would fact check the pod, the column, whatever it is. The ombudsman, <laughs> this is, I just love this. The ombudsman would have to be mic'd up, not only for every game, but for every practice. And that media organization would get to choose at least one choice quote from that mic. The media organization would receive a token percentage of the player salary up to 100k some some amount to give to civic or journalistic education initiatives um and also to acknowledge the fact that if you are a Draymond Green who's on a podcast talking about your team but you aren't working under media prerogatives you're basically also kind of being paid as 
a media staffer for the team and a player. It, I think it brings up a shrewd lawyer could say that you're, there's some of the same problems with the player coach are inherent in the role of someone like Draymond Green. There should be a fairness doctrine under which at some interval, maybe it's quarterly throughout the season, maybe it's once before and once after the All-Star break, you should provide unvarnished criticism of a specific teammate, coaching staff member, or in-game play or passage uh, of, of action. Um, and they should work with, again, this media organization that's partnered with the team, they should work with an assigning editor so that every once in a while assigns a topic that they have to address at the same length as they uh, address other topics um, instead of the sort of brush off that we get at the, the press conferences. Maybe they have a mailbag function where fans can send them emails and they have to then come out and answer those emails, providing an open channel. Um, and I think it's only fair that they get some sort of, and we have to work this out, uh, protection from management or ownership. If the ombudsman, so designated by the team, perhaps the ownership isn't privy to their contract ne- negotiations or something else that helps us protect them in their role as a journalist. This is all based on, of course, my worry that the more sort of player analysts like J- Draymond Green there are, the further and further journalism gets pushed out of the sort of real journalism that entails access and time and everything else gets pushed to the peripheries of what it means to cover sports. So I think we need some chastening and some some real regulation around the the, the future Draymond Greens of the world, the NBA ombudsman. Here we come. I'm excited for this era. I feel like if Draymond had been the Warriors ombudsman when he got into it, his dispute with Kevin Durant that uh, drove Durant off the team, then maybe, you know, if he had had that title, Durant would be like, eh, he's the ombudsman. I guess it's okay. <laughs> I probably I probably should stay here. Uh, no, this is very interesting. Um, we're getting to a point where um, it's, like, becoming a, a thing. Like, maybe, the, maybe it'll just, like, happen organically that there will be one player per team that has a podcast, like C.J. McCollum has one. For the Pelicans. Danny Green was talking about his podcast with Shaq and Charles and Kenny after the, the, the Sixers game on Sunday night. There you go. But the thing this this is coming up against and is maybe a solution for Vincent is that um, at every post-game press conference, after every playoff game, there's just the question of, are they going to go on the officials and get fined twenty five thousand or fifty thousand dollars? And it's like players talk about that calculus openly. They'll joke about, oh, "I don't." How much is it? You know, Giannis was saying, <laughs> "Yeah, you know, twenty thousand. Uh, I need to pay for diapers." This is you know, kind of a joke. I think you can afford it. But um, you know, Chris Paul, the the big story right. after Game Four mm-hmm. of Phoenix and Dallas was by kind of acclamation, everyone was saying that the officiating was really bad. And you're not getting you're not getting open and honest discussion about that because the players know that they'll get fines if they talk about it. And so I wonder if so the ombudsman has free reign. Carte blanche. Carte blanche, blanche to talk about issues. No no fines connected. No fines from the NBA or from their team connected to their commentary at, in their role as NBA ombudsman. Now I wonder whether this will create a market for players like. Draymond or J.J. Redick or Danny Green, who are really good at this and are smart and have interesting things to say and 
and are about, you know, given their roles as players, are about as open as possible. Will this create more open dialogue and insulate the players from, um, you know, just encourage them to be more honest about the way the game functions? That's part of the goal here, right? Absolutely. Just like, by the way, uh, the Times Ombudsman or somebody like that, or they don't have one anymore, so maybe this is part of the problem. But (laughs) not only do they help us understand uh, how basketball the game is played, but what goes into decisions that are made. And there's a big controversy. The ombudsman has to go and interview his teammates. Like, what was, tell me about that play. What happened? You know? <laughs> um, <laughs> that that would be a really great function for them to serve. Instead of just Draymond Green working for Colin Coward, by the way, which is what his, his podcast is on uh, the Volume Network, which is uh, owned by Colin Cowherd and uh, iHeart Radio. It's a joint venture. Um, and he's also a strategic advisor. So he's giving them uh, guidance on talent and hires, which I don't know what that means in Draymond's case. But I want to bring that away, a little bit away from sort of the iHearts of the world and, and make it more useful to us. We've given a lot of people a lot to think about here, so uh, we will <laughs> we, we will uh, take our leave to allow everyone to uh, digest. Uh, that is our show for today. Our producer is Kevin Bendis. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. Please subscribe to the show and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. For Vincent Cunningham and Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.